Welcome to Global Value Creators. We have in-depth conversations with exceptionally talented entrepreneurs from around the globe, drawing out timeless lessons. With enormous range of personalities from a wide variety of industries, we endeavor to uncover big ideas one can only discover off the beaten path. All past episodes are available at globalvaluecreators.com. Our guest today is Lou Cooperhouse, the CEO and co-founder of Blue Nalu, the world's leading producer of cell-based seafood. In this fascinating conversation, Lou talks about his early interest in microorganisms, his nearly four-decade-long career in the food industry, how he discovered the holy grail of cell-based food, and the huge ambitions he has for Blue Nalu. We dive deep into the group's culture, the profound environmental and health benefits of cell-based food, and how Lou plans to change the future of seafood. We hope you enjoy this discussion with a truly world-changing leader. Well, Lou, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. We're very excited to have you here. We, we think what you're doing is, uh, is really going to change the world eventually. So we, we appreciate it, and we're very excited to learn more about it. So um, maybe just to start, as we always like to do, maybe you could tell us about your, your childhood in, uh, in New Jersey there. And, and I understand it sounds like you, from our reading, you moved around quite a bit. So maybe we could start there. Yeah, thanks, Evan, for having me uh, on your program today. Um, yeah, my, my childhood, uh, actually, I was, I was born in Virginia. Uh, my dad was actually in the military. Uh, so as a, as a boy, I lived in uh, Germany and France, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, and then uh, uh, he came back and retired in New Jersey. And uh, so from there, I more or less grew up uh, and then uh, went to school at Rutgers and then found myself uh, following his footsteps a little bit, not in the military, but just uh, very comfortable with moving around and taking taking uh, new opportunities. And I my first job was at Campbell Soup. And. Uh, from there, I uh, actually took a new, new increasing uh, responsible uh, positions, uh, increasingly out west, went out to California and then came back to the East Coast again and came back again to the West Coast. And here I am uh, right now in San Diego. Well, there's quite a bit of moving around. Um, I, I was curious, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, how you, you got such an early interest in, I think, microbiology and food. It's, it's quite unique, I would say, that you got such, a, such an interest so early. And I also understand that maybe you had the opportunity to take over a family business from your father, but, but you couldn't re- resist the uh, temptation from food. So maybe you could just talk about that, that interest and where it came from. Yeah, so, so great background research there, Evan. And um, yes, yeah, so I, uh, and my dad, after he retired the military, my mother was a teacher. Um, he had several uh, stores uh, that, that uh, he decided to, to run and be an entrepreneur himself. And I actually, uh, you know, when I probably was like 11, 12 years old, I was a cashier working the store and doing inventory and all that. So got a kind of a early learning um, and even even uh, doing all the accounting, too, uh, in my earlier teenage years uh, for the business. So he put me right to work and it was a great experience uh, uh, growing up and taking that kind of uh, responsibility. Um, I find myself uh, you know, in, in the high school, you know, really fascinated by uh, the unknown, if you will, the unknown I would describe as microbiology. So this whole world of, uh, of things that you can't see, I just found that totally fascinating. So that was kind of my, I always found myself uh, doing very well in science and clearly having a great deal of interest. And, you know, just uh, it saw really a whole new world uh, in microorganisms to tell you the truth. Um, what I would do with that, I wasn't really quite sure initially. And uh, so it turns out I went to graduate school initially for microbiology um, and just to, you know, perhaps considering going into the pharmaceutical industry. 
Um, but nonetheless, I, I happened to take a job to pay the bills while I was in grad school. So I was going to school full time and I got a full time job. Also, third shift working from midnight to 8 a.m. at a subsidiary of Campbell Soup. So, so sure enough, uh, here I was uh, working in a lab, actually, uh, for a uh, Campbell Soup subsidiary and uh, and really saw the opportunity to integrate uh, microbiology with food uh, and really get involved with food safety and ultimately perishable food. So I subsequently had a great opportunity, uh, did very well at that particular uh, company, and they promoted me to go down to the uh, corporate office in Camden, New Jersey, uh, where I was in a brand new group. And it was really interesting. That kind of was the beginning of a pathway for me. So the brand new group at Campbell's was in perishable foods. So Campbell's historically was, as we all know, a shelf-stable canned foods, but also at the time was heavy in frozen foods. Uh, with uh, Le Menu and, and other products uh, that they had at the time, um, as well as a number, a number of other businesses. But for the first time, they launched into perishable refrigerated foods. Uh, so it was a very uh, a pioneering president at the time. Um, and I was in a brand new group and I just found myself flourishing, uh, working in a large company with all that uh, uh, corporate infrastructure, but in an entrepreneurial endeavor, you know, developing their very first uh, refrigerated prepared salad uh, then we worked on soups and sauces and entrees and desserts. And I was subsequently asked uh, to uh, lead a test market down in, uh, in Northern, Northern Virginia, actually. Uh, so I went down to Alexandria, Virginia and, and ran a 10 store test market. I was the only person that went down there. So here I was working for a multinational company as a sole employee running a test market, overseeing a team of chefs. And we worked with a third party uh, a catering company. We rented a uh, kitchen incubator facility that was USDA inspected, and uh, we were doing four-day shelf life, perishable foods, sold in an end-dial kiosk. This was the early 1980s with tuxedo drivers in a silver truck. It was crazy. So this was kind of the front end of home meal replacement, and it kind of uh, launched me, Evan, in, in, a, in a pathway of being involved with entrepreneurial ventures ever since. And uh, and that, you know, along along with that was just being fascinated by food tech and kind of the advances in um, in high quality culinary driven food products uh, that, you know, subsequently, uh, you know, went over the next uh, 35 years or so. Yeah, it's an amazing array of experience. Um, I, I guess, uh, as you mentioned, Campbell's and ConAgra and Nestle, and and I, I also know that you were involved in and started up companies like Menu Direct. So I, I guess one of my uh, curiosities was maybe you could talk about one of the most important thing you learned from those 35 or so years. I, I know that's a, a very long time, and I can imagine you learned all kinds of things, but I, I was just curious if, if something from that time, all that experience really is helping you now uh, with your current ventures and, and, um, and everything you're doing. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's very true what a lot of people say about their careers. You know, all the things that one has done kind of prepared yourself for you know the next next venture. And you know, I would clearly say um, uh, I've been involved with uh, large companies, small companies, family-run businesses, startups. You know, have also um, uh, even run uh, trade associations uh, and a university-based incubator program. So all those are just different kind of experiences. And I think at the end of the day, Evan, it's all about, you know, the team, you know, and, and really um, uh, working together in an interdisciplinary environment, you know, uh, putting together the right team under 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 very unique circumstances that might always present themselves <clears throat> to to really accomplish a goal and you know to really identify what success looks like, whether it's a trade association, family run company, startup, 
you know, or a large business like a Campbell's new startup itself. Um, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? What does success looks like? That's first, you know, we're driven, you know, be driven by culinary, you know, great tasting products. Consumers don't want to compromise on taste, you know, and, and identify a team that could be very cross-functional that also uh, brings together just a variety of skill sets. But it's very important to always recognize what the gaps are, you know, whether it's your personal gap or the team's gap and to bring in the experts to make it happen. So, you know, to me, it's always been about the team and uh, and really a culinary driven uh, company. Um, and I personally just have a love for partnerships and collaboration. And you know, that's been very true to what I've been able to do here at Blue Nalu as well, because none of us can succeed by ourselves. We need a team, but we also need external relationships to really make it come together. No, absolutely. And, and we, we'll dive more into the, the team building, I hope, uh, a bit later. But I guess the, the next step after your, your sort of more corporate career, you mentioned the uh, Rutgers Food Innovation Center, I think, where you had mentioned that you met over a thousand entrepreneurs over that 15 or so uh, year period, um, and including some huge successes that you met, you met there, I guess I understand, the Impossible Foods and, and others. Um, maybe was there a common trait that you saw in those business startups that you were able to incorporate uh, now? I, I, I guess maybe it's what you just mentioned about the team, but is there anything else that, that you learned from meeting all those? entrepreneurs in the, in the food space that, that really stuck out for you? Yeah, I, I found myself, Evan, you know, obviously I've, I've got a lot of personal experiences of startups and I, I went through a, a second part of my career where I was mentoring others and, you know, went through a, a, a period of, of giving back and, you know, do, did a lot of consulting uh, and coaching and mentoring. And frankly, I wasn't looking to start up another company. And I really do enjoy, you know, mentoring others and providing that kind of um, support system you know, and, and, and to your earlier point, you know, just identifying what the gaps are that would really help create success. And I was also known as a bit of a Mr. Tough Love. You know, if I didn't think an idea was good, I would be very transparent about it and say, you know, you really should stick with your day job. You know, this is really not a venture that makes a whole lot of sense. There's just way too much competition. You don't have a point of differentiation. Um, you need to do some more work. So I found myself, uh, you know, very hard to please. Uh, when it came to new startups. But what I started to see, Evan, when I was at Rutgers, actually, and I was doing some consulting from like the year 2000 on, was a, a transition at the consumer level, actually. So in my earlier days, I was very involved with products that were convenient or healthy. I'll, I'll describe them as, as selfish, you know, benefits. You know, that they were, they were great tasty, but they were more about for me. But what, what started to transition was products that were increasingly communicating societal benefits. So foods weren't, you know, and, and maybe it's a bit of the Starbucks phenomenon also, you know, people were looking for experiences, you know, whether it's fair trade or, or a different kind of personal experience or a societal benefit and foods were becoming mission driven, you know, and, 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 uh, and not just good for your, yourself, but good for the planet. So I, I, I found myself doing a lot of public speaking, you know, while I was at Rutgers and doing consulting. And uh, I was always asked to talk about food trends and food technologies and be a bit of a futurist there. And I, I found myself saying literally that we are on the front end of a global transformation of the food system. So, you know, early on, we saw a lot of home delivery businesses. Uh, that's obviously on fire again. Um, but what was really kind of interesting was the opportunity to make an animal product without an animal. So, so, you know, generation one that kind of uh, launched was obviously plant-based foods. 
So as you mentioned, Apostle Foods, Beyond Meat and others kind of launched over the past, you know, 10 years or so. Of course, these products have been out for several decades beforehand. Um, but what was different is, is we all know consumers don't want to give up on, on flavor and culinary. So here we have products that, you know, really uh, replicated some of those same sensory attributes, but using plants. However, they did have a fair amount of processed ingredients. They may include genetic modification, but they were a great solution and consumers felt good about these purchases and they didn't compromise on flavor. So what I got fascinated by was something that I read about, frankly, in the paper is around that you know, mid, mid, mid 2010 period, 2013, 2015, um, that uh, the opportunity to make an animal product without an animal from its own cells, I really said, this is the holy grail. This is the most amazing technology. This is so transformative. And I was saying that in public. And uh, in answer your question, you know, here I am, somebody that's a bit hard to please when it comes to new food trends and technologies, but I saw this as unlike anything I've ever seen before, totally transformative. And I called it the Holy Grail, you know, yeah. and, and uh, but, but then I, you know, uh, you know, then I actually studied the category quite a bit. Um, and we can talk more about that and really identify that the real opportunity was not where it started with mammalian or terrestrial products, but actually with seafood. And that was kind of the launch of what became Blunalu. Yeah, no, I, I want to dive into that as, as well a bit later. I, I was curious, you, you mentioned, uh, I, I think you referred to the, the, the moment when you, or the time when you read about uh, Professor Mark Post's death, I think it was a $300,000 burger that was partly uh, paid for by Sergey Brin, I guess the, the co-founder exactly. of Google. I was just curious uh, if you remember that sort of aha moment, it, it, you, you read about that and then you, you realized that this was the holy grail. I, I, I literally did. Uh, it was absolutely an aha moment. I, um, it was an aha moment with a, with a but, you know, so I, I really saw this as a holy grail. I said, wow, I, th I found it amazing. So, so when I, in my aha moment was, wow, that is a holy grail, disruptive, transformative technology, unrivaled of anything I've ever seen. Very, very disruptive potential. But I also said my butt was the first product was a hamburger. You know, it, so it's more of a, of a commodity product. And I said, you know, there's so many different proteins one could be working on. You know, so I, I really was studying the whole protein category and that kind of led to my saying the but was, but seafood is a far greater and tr more transformative and more disruptive opportunity. And I really set my eyes on really studying that space. So, so then I, I love the next part of the story before you founded Blue Nella. So you were, you were uh, so excited about the seafood and I understand you were giving some kind of speech down in, in Hawaii um, and there happened to be a VC group sitting in the audience. And I, I just love the fact that you were planning to start a business until you give a, a speech in the right place at the right time. That's very true. Yeah, it was actually, um, I was doing some consulting work in, uh, in Hawaii for the University of Hawaii and also for several nonprofits there. Much, I was really focused on entrepreneurship development and I was I was actually um, a keynote speaker at the Hawaii Agricultural Foundation. And there was like 300 people in Honolulu. And uh, when I was talking to the organizer and it was really about helping Hawaiian entrepreneurs, which, you know, which, as we all know, Hawaii is an island. And the only way to be successful outside of local uh, local sales is to really think about export big ideas. So my discussion with the organizers was. Hey, I have an idea. If you like, why don't we just talk about some really big ideas, vertical farming, you know, uh, alternative proteins, you know, and just all sorts of things and really provide some stimulation for the audience. And I, and I did, I did just that. I provided a several case studies 
uh, on companies that got me really excited. And I and I found myself saying, Evan, you know, the category that gets me most excited is cell based. It is the holy grail. And it really is the biggest opportunity is clearly seafood. I just don't know why N- nobody's really worked on a really successful strategy just yet. There are a few startups in the space, but nobody really doing it the way I thought it should be done. And sure enough, I, I made that presentation and I was thinking about this already a little bit, but not really thinking about starting a company. And sure enough, the power of networking. So I just met some folks and, and we had some common connections and it led to uh, uh, the first venture capital that came into the company. And and before you knew it, uh, I was asked to be the CEO and I said, you know, I'll do it. This is this is truly this. It, it is what it, it is. What it, I'm saying it is that I wasn't really planning to start a company you know, later in life. But this was something that I felt I absolutely could accomplish. I, I really saw you know, what the success looked like. And I, I, I felt quite confident, as I clearly do today, that this can be extremely transformative. Uh, it's an amazing story. Uh, it shows the power of networking, as you said. Um, so maybe just staying back a bit, uh, we've been obviously mentioning it or, or referencing it, but maybe you could just, uh, for those of us that got a C minus or so in, in basic chemistry, including myself, maybe you could just explain um, it, the whole sort of the scientific process, just a, a, the big idea, how cell-based fish or, or just generally how cell-based um, foods work and, and um, you, you know, make it as simple as possible, whatever you'd like to say on that. Thank you. No, it's, yeah, I think in simplest terms, you know, what, Maybe if you think about, um, let's pretend that right now that you're having a hamburger or a fish fillet on your plate right now. So if you were to look at that, you know, back to microbiology, if you're looking at that under a microscope, you know, um, you know, the 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 uh, what's providing you the the texture, the taste, the mouthfeel, et cetera, are various cells. So you might say to yourself, wow, that's a really lean fish or that's a really fatty fish, you know, great mouthfeel. So what you're not saying is, wow, that's an awful lot of muscle cells in that in that uh, lean fish or a lot of fat cells in that fatty fish. Um, so what what we're doing in this whole t- uh, this whole category of cell based uh, meat, poultry or seafood is we're isolating uh, cells from the animal itself. So in our case, if it's mahi mahi or red snapper, bluefin tuna uh, or somebody's working on poultry or duck, you know, or, or poultry, including duck or beef or what have you, or pork, um, they are isolating uh, those same cell types that are found in the, in the product that we're normally consuming. They being typically muscle cells, fat cells, or connective tissue cells. And what we're doing is that we're, we're isolating those, we're, we're creating what's called a stable cell line. So, so we are uh, essentially a raw material, if you will, a bit like a starter culture in, in theory. Um, so we're creating this stable cell line uh, that, uh, that in our case, uh, are able to do without genetic modification and then producing that, you know, having that double and double and double, uh, having that, if you will, be bathed in nutrients, uh, some of the same nutrients that might be found in, in our case, in aquaculture feed, you know, supplemented with certain, uh, ingredients that, per, you know, promote growth. Um, and it ultimately looks like a microbrewery. So picture, if you will, uh, you know, large stainless steel containers uh, called bioreactors in our case uh, that could be quite large in size uh, where you might have muscle cells or fat cells or connective tissue cells growing in these large stainless steel containers that are then formed together into the same physical product that you might consume. Some people are making ground and formed products. 
um, like a hamburger or a, a, a fish cake or a patty or a croquet or something like that. In our case, we're working on a whole muscle application. So we are focused on the, on the filet category, uh, whether that's a poke cube or it's a filet or it's a strip for sashimi, um, various different applications. So again, this whole protein marketplace is so huge with so many different species and so many different forms of product. So, so the, um, the opportunity is, is clearly quite significant, but there's also quite complex given all the different ways that uh, food service operators and consumers are preparing food today. Yeah, and, and I, I guess my, my next question was about your business model, I, understanding the, the process. It, maybe you could talk a bit just uh, again in, in sort of general terms, how you will make money and, and sort of also the, the uh, price parity. Will, will the, the product cost the same as a whole fish or, or anything you could talk about your business model and, and the ultimate price? Yeah, I mean, our, our business model is really from the beginning was to be first focused on scale production. So we saw, you know, proof of concept, uh, you know, that uh, Mark Post and others have done early on. And what I set out of Bunalu was a company that was focused on scale production. And frankly, I found myself uh, as one of the few uh, founders globally who has a food industry background. You know, many founders came from biopharma or came from academia even. Um, so I was really driven by you know, what does success look like with large factories? And to your point about price parity, you know, the only way this will be successful is if we can achieve the price parity and, and, and really the economies of scale that will drive down the cost of this product. The beauty we're doing is seafood. I call what we're doing with, you know, working on products like, uh, you know, Mahi Mahi or, or Red Snapper or Bluefin Tuna. You know, these are products that command a premium price. You know, so they're, if you will, the ribeye steak equivalents on the seafood side. We're not working on, on the equivalent of a hamburger or a surimi or a ground product, but instead the filet or whole muscle product that commands a premium price point. So our potential for margin is quite significant. So back to your question about the business model, it's a focus on scale. You know, and I developed a, a five phase commercialization strategy shortly after the company was founded. You know, that really identified various milestones that would that would lead to a profitable large scale factory. Of course, all these milestones need to be achieved, you know, over a sequential fashion, but also working in a parallel path, understanding operations and engineering, regulatory, marketing and development of partnerships. Uh, so, again, a very holistic approach about how success comes together. And our focus was also about being a, a global company with a supply chain solution, not working on one species, but a platform technology of a wide array of species, knowing that when seafood is distributed, we can't be in the one species business. We need to really cover the whole menu, uh, initially with finfish. Uh, so our focus was really in the, in the broad category finfish to really uh, see if we couldn't frankly, you know, nail uh, and, uh, the whole finfish category and, and migrate from species to species and demonstrate that we really could be a platform technology across a broad array of species. And uh, so our business model really encompasses, you know, really this global opportunity and a broad array of products that we can make available uh, over time. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, starting, I think, with Chilean sea bass and snapper and, and bluefin, and then obviously having to expand to the the um, the other uh, categories as well. Um, maybe you could just tell us a, a bit more about that. I mean, it sounds like, uh, from my understanding, you, you have the capability to, to do the the entire range, or, or you think you do at least at this point. And so maybe you could just talk a little bit about that platform at a high level. Yeah, we're, we're still early on, Evan. Yeah, so this this whole 
uh, you know, this whole industry globally is still in its infancy. You know, so nobody has, uh, uh, um, obviously we, we know that in Singapore, a product was approved in the, in the case of, of chicken, a chicken nugget type of product. But in the United States and in Europe, there's no products uh, that have been approved at all. And all of the companies, you know, are, are, have to deal with the regulatory approval and all the companies need to deal with commercialization and, and reducing our cost of goods. Um, so we're all very early. So, you know, it's, you know, but however, you're seeing Blunalu and several other companies, uh, our peers in the space that are all have committed to pilot production, uh, to building out small scale facilities to actually uh, further uh, their commercialization milestones. Um, and again, this has never been done before. So that's that's the that's the, the thrill of it all. You know, nobody has ever, you know, uh, you know, so we've accomplished so much already, but clearly our Blunalu and many of our peers, we all have to, a lot still to accomplish, but it's very, very uh, achievable. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Uh, but I think you'll start to see some real activity uh, in, in 2022, um, you know, next year where there'll be several companies, I'm sure that'll be hitting the market with some initial market testing. Yeah. No, it's amazing. And, and then how do you think about the customer base over the next coming years? I think it'll initially be restaurants, but how, how will, will you sell direct or, or what is the distribution method at this point in time? In our case, we're very focused on, on food service, you know, and you know, you know, back to the culinary driven company that we are, you know, the case of seafood, something like uh, two thirds of all seafood consumed in the United States is consumed at food service. You know, people you know, sadly in America are very uh, scared to actually produce seafood at home. Uh, they love it at the restaurant, uh, but uh, whether it's the smell or the fact that it's all animal and they have to prepare it uh, or it's high value, uh, they're just uncomfortable preparing seafood at home. Um, but uh, that being said, it's also a reality uh, that many, many products uh, launched in the food industry begin at food service. It really is a, a bit of a playground where you can learn quickly. When you're retail, you can't fail. So, so you need to have uh, your act together, your costs together, um, you know, uh, and very tight, you know, and, and you're uh, uh, before you even want to think about that because the volume is enormous and you can't fail. But food service, you can begin with a couple of restaurants, really understand that's really what we're doing is we want to test our product in fine dining, fast casual, as an appetizer, as an entree, for lunch, for dinner, different kind of communication messages. So for us, you know, we're excited to launch in food service because it really allows us to get, do what we call LTOs, limited time offer uh, introductions for several months to different restaurant chains. We're focused on iconic restaurants. We've actually learned already, Evan, that in some primary research that we've done, there's a tremendous interest in our cell-based seafood products, particularly amongst consumers who who enjoy seafood like two, three times a week or more. So those who love seafood are also most aware of the challenges of seafood and they're most inclined to try our seafood. So that's a, that's a, a really wonderful answer. But that also says that we need to really you know, place our products in, in great, great locations that people really go to for great seafood. Um, and we could be featured and, and really you know, learn quickly about uh, what resonates and what doesn't. 
Yeah, no, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, you mentioned that there are other people doing this, obviously, and, and you mentioned in burgers and, and sake and, and all kinds of things. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about the competitive landscape, uh, particularly as it applies to the seafood space. Um, and, and then I, I guess uh, I understand it's quite a sensitive area, but in terms of the, the intellectual property that you do have and, and protecting it, um, I, I'm just curious how much of it is truly intellectual property and, and how much of it could someone else uh, copy, at least in theory. Yeah, there, there's really um, there's really extraordinary intellectual property in this space. You know uh, what we what we realized early on when we put together our technical strategy. You know, back at the founding of the company was there's there's uh, uh, first of all all the science really existed on terrestrial animals. So because of humans and hamsters and mice and all the work that was done there, um, there's an awful lot of science around mammalian cell culturing technology. There was little to none around, you know, really isolating, propagating and creating stable, stable cell lines of fish species. There was a little bit of work in aquarium fish, but really essentially no knowledge. So sure enough, you know, we began with a total white space from an IP point of view. Um, and uh, to answer your question, there's just uh, there's just extraordinary IP because it is an uncharted landscape. Um, and we have we also realize there's there's various methods to accomplishing our goal. Uh, we have taken, without getting into too many, too many details here, we've taken a particular high road, if you will, uh, with, uh, you know, without use, in our, in, our, in our opinion, without using genetic engineering, um, a commitment to animal-free uh, media, you know, and also uh, making a product that is absolutely culinary driven. So there's an awful lot of IP uh, that, that's growing the space. And to answer your, your, your earlier question, there, you know, there's there's probably uh, somewhere between 50 and 80 companies around the world. The number kind of varies, depends on where they are in their funding. Many companies, you know, have identified themselves as startups, but they have no funding. So not sure if they'll ever get off the ground. But there's only uh, maybe a, a few dozen that really have attracted, you know, a decent amount of funding to get started. The whole space is still brand new. I think you'll see considerable investment, you know, from the VC and the strategic community once companies really launch into commerce, um, I think it will far exceed what happened in plant-based because the opportunity I feel is far more compelling. Uh, this is version 2.0 and I really call this holy grail. This is the, the end of the line. This is, you know, to make an animal product without an animal, this is it. This is, uh, you know, versus a plant-based solution. This is, if you will, the real thing. We all need to execute and, and really demonstrate it. But once that happens, uh, which is really in the next, uh, you know, 12 to 20 more, 12 to 24 months, you'll see products on the market. And I think you'll see an extraordinary amount of um, investment in this space. Uh, there's only, you know, uh, roughly four or five companies globally working on cell-based seafood. Most of them are just working on a single species. Some are working on more of a ground and form product. Um, so there's, you know, again, the, the, the issue of seafood is such a fragmented, global, diversified marketplace. You know, many companies can clearly be successful um, because it is so large and, and, you know, and there's so many species that people eat. Uh, so there's uh, a number of companies that clearly can be successful over time. 
Yeah, but it sounds like you're leaps and bounds ahead of the others. Um, maybe to take a step back, uh, maybe you could highlight the, the profound environmental benefits. I mean, it, it seems like you have the opportunity to uh, substantially change the, the fishing industry, obviously the food industry, and also at the same time, hugely uh, boost the, the fight against climate change. So, so maybe you could just touch on the, the big items there, uh, how, how, uh, how remarkable this is for the environment. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that point up because that's, you know, uh, my advice to entrepreneurs has, has always been the same thing. And I asked myself that very question, why seafood, you know, and um, what are the benefits? Why do we need this solution? And to me, it was, it was very clear. So f- first, you know, uh, as a food person, there's a fundamental supply chain gap. So, so here you have an increasing global demand at the expense of red meat of seafood. People love seafood. The per capita assumption is at an all time high. Is particularly going up in Asia as GDP increases. Um, the consumption there now is three to five times what it is in America and Europe, and particularly in certain countries. So you have an increasing demand for seafood. However, you have a diminishing supply. Wild caught fisheries have been flat for several decades now. Aquaculture is trying to keep up. There's issues with both solutions. Um, First of all, there's a a global supply chain gap that we just cannot feed the planet in the future. But then you have issues of human health. So you have microplastics that we're increasingly aware of. There's environmental pollutants. But very importantly, that we learn in the world of COVID, there's great vulnerability in this supply chain. This supply chain is is potentially victim to warming oceans, acidification, algae blooms, things we can't control. Unlike land animals, which are very predictable, it is an absolute unpredictable supply chain. And, and you know, one way I, I always describe it too is when you have a restaurant menu, just put it in common sense, there's only one item on the menu that says market price. It's the catch of the day. That's code for, I don't know. You know, so that means I don't know what my supply is or what I'll even charge you because I can't I don't know until I receive it what's been caught. So if you if you take that philosophy, you know, what we're doing with seafood, making it cell based, you know, as this third solution, wild caught farm is now cell based. A, we're supplementing the global supply, but B, we're, pro- we're offering a product that has human health benefits like the absence of mercury, microplastics, environmental pollutants, something that you could trust. There is a fair amount of. Um, unintentional or advertent mislabeling that goes on in this industry. Um, It's fraudulent in some cases. Um, In some cases, people just don't know. But nonetheless, you know, it's a trusted supply that's consistent. We are we are changing this model, Evan, from a today, a supply restricted model. We're shipping fish 10,000 miles from, say, Southeast Asia to New York City with maybe 30 or 50 percent bycatch and maybe a 60 percent yield. Our model is 100% yield, made at a factory, maybe 100 miles away. So the environmental benefits, the sustainability, the human health, the animal suffering, uh, there's so many benefits. It's, it's almost a, a challenge of benefits uh, and offering a consistent supply that's stable. So, so it's really, you know, that's what really got me so excited. You know, seafood industry really can be quite transformed. It's quite a paradigm shift that we can create here. Yeah, no, it's absolutely amazing. Um, as an admitted uh, sushi addict, I, I, you, you touched on the, the health, uh, um, the, the health improvements, obviously. But um, I, I understand, obviously, the absence of mercury and other things, but also the fact that the fish could could stay on the shelf at least in theory longer because there's no bacteria. So maybe you could just dive in a little bit more on, on the health, human health benefits, uh, because they seem uh, quite profound as well. Yeah, I, th- I think um, 
you know, again, coming out of the food industry, one thing that I was always very aware, aware of, um, which some consumers are, some consumers aren't, but there's, a, there's one, there's one item that we all eat all the time, uh, that there's a warning about and it's seafood, you know, it's for pregnant nursing women. So the FDA and the EPA say, you know, of these, this category of seafood have, please have zero servings per week, none, um, like shark and some other, other species, um, then there's a category called please have one serving per week, four ounces or two to three. So, so that's just about mercury. Um, but I think as consumers are becoming increasingly aware of microplastics and how they're entering this, the, the seafood supply and then entering your bodies, we just don't know. We don't know yet about, you know, you know what challenges that might cause in the future. Um, so the human health benefits, uh, even in the primary research that we've done so far, Evan, uh, have really resonated with consumers. So again, when I think about cell-based proteins and why seafood, there's there's a unique benefit to consumers that is unlike what exists in terrestrial animals. There's antibiotics, for example, in both situations, but there's issues like mercury and microplastics and environmental pollutants that are unique to seafood. So there's a differentiator. So as I as I as I'm a as I'm a hardcore person about differentiation. You know, there's a clear differentiator for consumers on human health that really resonates. And we've actually shown that in the research we've done so far. We've also found with food service operators, they're excited by that, too. But what really excited them, uh, which came out over and over again, was consistency. You know, they, 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 they have such variability in their seafood, you know, that the yield is, is variable. The supply is variable. The freshness is variable. Uh, the availability is even variable. So, so Blunalo, you have this. A, a model where you can make product year round, you know, consistently. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that itself is a game changer, particularly with hundred percent yield. So, so again, um, you know, the, the different benefits for different audiences, but um, in both cases, these are a unique situation um, that doesn't exist on the land animal side uh, that the food service operator is quite motivated to have our products uh, and as our consumers that we've uh, tested with as well. I was curious about your, your marketing message. You, you mentioned you've done some, I guess, marketing research or studying about the, the positioning of the product. Um, I, I tell friends and family about this idea and they sort of look at me like, you know, I, I'm crazy at first, like th this can't actually exist. So I, I was curious if you, you have some sort of uh, message or, or exactly the, the messaging strategy that you're going to pursue when, when this is first uh, launched over the next year or two. That's a great question, Evan. And that's, that's really why we started food service because we, we do want to test uh, various messages and we have done, uh, we have worked with some marketing agencies and we have uh, uh, we have actually uh, put out some various types of language amongst uh, consumers. And and candidly, um, you know, there, there are there are a, a significant amount of benefits to what we're doing. Um, on the other hand, we realize that it's significantly different than what you're used to. You know, on the on the flip side, I come from the food industry, so many people don't think about hot dogs or processed cheese or even candy, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, you know, with gelatin, whatever, you know, that, that people don't even think about or care about, you know, so this too will pass where people will kind of get over any, any fear that they might have about the process. Um, because in, in fact, there are, are so many benefits to it uh, that uh, I, I think, you know, I'm very confident we will be preferred. And we've actually seen, initial evidence that consumers are willing to pay a premium for our product because it does offer benefits for human health 
and sustainability. So we're actually testing, you know, uh, those benefits collectively or independently to really learn about what what specifically is resonating the most. You know, what what are the attributes that make you excited? But thus far, the personal health benefits have really uh, called out to us. No, that's great. I guess they'll they'll look at you a little strange at the beginning, and then they'll they'll buy every piece of fish they can get after they they realize what's what uh, what you've been able to produce. Um, maybe turning a little bit to the, the uh, operation and, and the, the business itself, um, I, I was wondering if you could talk about your team, um, what traits you look for, how you recruit in an industry that, uh, as you mentioned, just came just started a few years ago. It's uh, it's not been around for very long, and I, I understand you uh, have on your team someone called the the cell whisperer, if I understand correctly. So I was I was a bit curious about that. So maybe you could just talk about the, the, those big ideas. No, no. Um, you know, I think uh, true to any company, it's all about the team. You know, so uh, you know, you got the greatest idea, but with the wrong team, you'll never be successful. So, so clear. And, and back to your your earlier question, you know, about learnings and in industry, it really is all about putting together the right team, and uh, and frankly, a team that um, this is an area that's so brand new. Even as we interview people, Evan, I have to tell you. Uh, Sometimes we use um, some tactics um, that we want to make sure that people are are thrilled at the idea of doing something that's never been done before. This is not a job. I, I describe people in life as authors or editors. Editors like to make things better or into continual improvement. Authors like to create. So this is a job for people that you need, always need editors, too. But it's heavily about authors, people who who love to figure things out and who find that very motivating. And whether that's in finance or operations or R&D, engineering, regulatory. So we're doing things for the first time. It's a very, very creative bunch. So, so you're looking for that creative spark in people and the passion, not just for the innovation, but also the passion for the business that we're in. You know, we're seeing just as we're, we're seeing consumers seeking sustainable products, we're seeing people, employees that want to work for a company that embraces sustainability more than ever. So, so we're, we're finding people that are not just passionate for innovation, but passionate for the company's mission. And that's what we look for in a company. And, and it's really about, you know, earn our employees. And we're really looking for people that bring all sorts of expertise, whether it's biology, operations, engineering, they may come from different industries and that's okay. It's all about diversity of, of thought, you know, of backgrounds, you know, and that, you know, and, and really creating a community of collaboration. Um, and, and that's really how we fostered that from the very beginning. And it's, and it's been really great, very effective. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and I've noticed over time that those, those kind of authors, as you call them, tend to also want to be compensated um, appropriately if they, if they do end up creating something. So again, obviously, uh, uh, respecting the sensitivities, but I was just curious about your, your general philosophy on, on incentivizing the team, particularly as you continue to grow. Yeah, and in, in, in our case, um, uh, I imagine uh, other companies are doing things similarly. But uh, you know, we have obviously a philosophy uh, that on a, you know, obviously we want people to see this as as a personal and mission driven opportunity. Um, but on the financial side, um, we're also offering for all employees stock options. You know, so so the opportunity to be successful. You know, uh, in the event there's uh, any kind of liquidity event. Um, you know, we see a big opportunity uh, that that could that could uh, uh, could be created as well. Um, but we're actually, you know, that's something that uh, we think is, uh, is certainly motivating. But 
Um, it's funny that the employees that we have, I think they all see that as a, a great opportunity, but you know, they're really in love with uh, the thrill of, of really creating something. You know, the, everybody's excited to taste uh, the, these, these uh, first fish products, have them, with, have them with their family. And, you know, that motivation to create something brand new like this is really something the team talks about all the time. Uh, so, you know, we're all quite excited at, at, uh, at our potential for success here. No, that's that's awesome. Um, I guess you sort of already answered it to some extent, but maybe I'll ask it in a different way. Um, I, I was curious about the culture, um, I guess, which is a bit different than the, the, the passion. Um, and I was also curious about if, if there was another organization, maybe the one you've worked or one you've admired that you're trying to model the, the culture uh, of the group after. That's a great question, Evan. We've actually um, uh, are spending a fair amount of, of, of time uh, really uh, fostering, uh, you know, an even more uh, embellished uh, culture that, at the company. I think we've done it through default, you know, creating this uh, highly cooperative, collaborative, transparent environment. Um, you know, it's really, uh, you know, and we've even have, uh, you know, a, a bunch of, uh, of books uh, that we've identified, you know, from good to great to art of war to everything in between um, that, that uh, about what success might look like and various ways we could learn. Um, we're all about celebrating success as well. You know, so, you know, there's so many milestones that we're achieving sometimes in, in a matter of weeks um, that, uh, you know, so we're, we're all, uh, we have so many, uh, so many team meetings and interdisciplinary, you know, updates. So really it's a, a high level of communication, collaboration. You know, we're a team of about 35 people today. Um, we plant, you know, but we weren't, but we were, you know, five, six or seven just a couple of years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we see ourselves uh, doubling in size over the next uh, 12, 15 months or so. so. So obviously as teams evolve, you want to kind of maintain that, that uh, highly interactive and communicative spirit. Um, and, uh, but, you know, again, transparency, communication, respect uh, are clearly things that, uh, you know, we resonate. But in terms of, you know, peers in industry, uh, we don't really have any identified peer that we really look look to, but we have looked at uh, some and you know, maybe a dozen different companies, and we're trying to borrow some of their ideas uh, to bring them as our own. Uh, but um, but again, it's a very unique environment that's uh, you know true for startups. You really want to you know have this highly collaborative and respectful uh, and transparent uh, relationship with amongst all employees. So there's no, it is you know there obviously is a hierarchy, but it's a very horizontal structure where everybody feels comfortable talking to each other, uh, particularly in the pre-COVID days where we had open offices and everybody was quite available, but we've, we've done our best uh, doing the same thing with Zoom. Oh, that, that's wonderful. Um, on the investor side, um, uh, you've attracted uh, some of the who, who, who's who of investors uh, in the cell base uh, space from, from uh, McWin and CPT and Stray Dog and others. I, I was cu curious what beyond the capital, um, I, I know some of them have just joined the, the cap table, but, but some of the earlier investors, what, what have they um, provided so far uh, to you beyond, beyond just money? Yeah, I think it goes back to... Um kind of an earlier comment I made about as the company got started and we and our focus was on scale production and success, you know, identified early on success will only come with strategic partners and strategic partners could also include in a way venture capital organizations that have relationships. So it's all about relationships. You know, I'm a, I, my whole life has been about networking and, and cultivating relationships and been involved with all kinds of trade associations and really enjoy that. 
And I realized that success, particularly in seafood, is such a fragmented global business. We really need kind of two general kind of partners, one partner on the supply chain side, so we can really drive our cost of goods down and, and achieve economies of scale uh, and really uh, organizations that can help us with raw materials um, in this brand new space that's migrating from farmer grade supply to food grade. And on the second type of partner, if you will, is, is, is one on the, we'll call it operations, sales, market distribution side. So early on, you know, we were able to attract, you know, we, we attracted four and a half million dollars in our seed round in early 2018. It was the largest seed round in the space at the time. Uh, then we attracted 20 million in the A round, which was also largest at the time. And we just closed on a $60 million financing also, as you're aware. And, and, uh, but even early on in, the, in our A round some time ago, you know, a couple of years ago now, we brought on at that time five strategic investors. Uh, so Natreco from the Netherlands, you know, was, was one that, you know, that was, you know, just an outstanding example of a company that's, uh, you know, the, or one of the largest suppliers aquaculture feed in the world. So from a supply chain partner that really understands fish feed for aquaculture, we're feeding not living fish, but living fish cells. So there are some a fair amount of commonalities there. Um, and also Griffith Foods, who really has expertise in culinary food science and helping us optimize the sensory characteristics of our product. So two great companies that came in are ARAM, but then also Pomoan from Korea and Sumitomo from Japan and Rich Products in the US, all of which have uh, you know the potential to support us in sales and distribution in the future. Um, and in the case of, say, Rich Products, have uh, marketing uh, company, marketing brands for CPAC and Mori Seafood. Um, and, and then most recently in our uh, recent financing, Thai Union came in, uh, which, which uh, has a large equity ownership of Red Lobster uh, restaurants, but also uh, Chicken in the Sea uh, and, and a tremendous global presence uh, in seafood, one of the largest in the world. Uh, so they're really helping us understand the market opportunities in Asia and Europe. And companies like McWin and others, as you mentioned, uh, really have connections with food service and other segments. So we're really seeing our investors as really helping us plant seeds uh, to, to really open doors uh, to uh, ultimately uh, provide us uh, distribution access to customers through their trusted brands. Um, so we, we want to have expertise at the, at the technology, the science, the engineering, the operations, the quality assurance, the regulatory. We don't have to have the expertise in sales and marketing. I recognize how, how challenging that is and how many years and decades it takes to develop those relationships at retail and food service. So we look to our partners uh, to really distribute our products for us in, in joint ventures that we'll be establishing over time. It sounds like money's the, the least of what they've they've given to you. Um, you, you mentioned, I think, before um, in a different conversation that you you talked about how cell based is uh, cell based food is really sort of the new food tech, and and how uh, traditional VCs have finally started to pay attention. Although I think it's still small scale. If I'm maybe I'm wrong, but I think only about a billion dollars or so has been deployed into uh, into uh, the, the cell based food space. C can you talk about the investment landscape and and the progress you've made uh, courting some of these traditional tech uh, investors into food? I think, you know, the, the, the three-letter acronym that these investors all use is TAM, Total Addressable Market, you know, and, and uh, as you well know. So, so I think, you know, when you look at some of the third-party research that companies have done in the space, for example, the AT Kiernan report that, that suggests that there could be, um, if my memory's right, a 41% uh, annual growth rate 
uh, between 2025 and 24, 2040 in a 35% global market share of cell-based protein uh, with, with a 9% annual growth rate and a 25% market share of plant-based where conventional meat becomes unconventional and represents just 40% by in two decades. So you're seeing those kind of projections out there. Um, and, as, and as I think about slicing and dicing, if you will, the different protein category, you know, ribeye steaks might continue to be conventional ribeye steaks, but maybe the hamburger category goes away at 90%, you know, from ground meat to cell-based or plant-based. Both of them can provide a solution. In our case of cell-based filet categories, I don't believe it can be successfully accomplished with plant-based. Um, and we could certainly have a significant market share of certain species uh, that are today are typically imported, difficult or impossible to farm raise, you know, on watch lists. So we can really make a huge difference uh, and, and make more of a demand-driven uh, supply chain model. So to answer your question, you know, investors are excited by the TAM. Yes, it is early, um, but, you know, there's also tremendous competitive insulation. Your earlier point about IP, the plant-based category, we're seeing some of the large companies enter the space with other ways of creating plant-based products with, you know, maybe cleaner labels. Um, yes, there are some early companies like Beyond Impossible that, that are early entrants that have created market share, but you'll see a lot more competition in that space. Um, I don't believe you'll see nearly that kind of, you know, follow, follow on activities in cell base because it is so complex. Um, so I think that there's much more likely chance that there'll be a few larger players. It's a bit like the beverage or even the beer category where you have, uh, for example, Coke and Pepsi in the beverage and, and uh, AB InBev and others in the, in the, uh, the spirits category, you know, that are just uh, dominant players in the space. And I really think that's what you'll see on the cell-based side where plant-based, there will ultimately be just a, a number of different solutions. Yeah, you, you touched on a few of my upcoming questions there. So I'm going to try to uh, dive a little deeper on those. You mentioned the TAM. The, I think it's now 200 billion or so, or, or it's about to be at that level. I, I was curious, maybe you could paint a picture with, with that in mind, what Blue Nello looks like in your mind a, a decade uh, from now and, and how you would define the success of Blue Nello. I don't, I don't know if you have a market share in mind, maybe not, but just in terms of sort of the, the big picture of, of what success would look like to you in a decade. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think you know some of the market data suggests that there's about a 200 billion dollar segment today worldwide. Even the, the data is so confusing. It's it's probably we found that we found the data on the seafood industry the most challenging in the world. And we've actually hired some data experts who said this is complicated because there's there's so much export and import. There is frankly a, a fair amount of illegal fishing that goes on. There's products that are exported and imported back, and there's a pet care market too. Um, there's fish meal market, so it's complicated. So whatever the number is, um, it's big, um, and it's only increasing. Um, in terms of market share, you know, we, we haven't even, you know, uh, wouldn't even dare to to provide any any insight there. However, you know, we really think that this will be exponential. The growth, you know, we need to obviously develop. You know, right now, as you may be aware, we're developing a pilot facility. It's about 40,000 square feet here in San Diego. That'll be where we can launch products into commerce, get some market feedback, very small volumes, um, very rewarding on the market information side uh, and the regulatory side, but you know, really not even making us even a small dent in, in market share. Um, but that becomes a real amazing proof point for uh, 
given us the confidence to then go to our first large scale factory. You know, um, a factory that we don't know just yet. We'll know when we get to this next milestone, but maybe it can produce 10 million pounds of product per year, maybe more, depends on the factory's designed. That's still a small dent. Um, so, so once that first large scale factory gets built and we believe it can be quite profitable, you know, then it's a matter of uh, rapidly, it becomes, a bit, if you will, a bit of a cookie cutter. You know, how can we escalate that and then build factories in Asia in particular, Europe, of course, uh, throughout the US uh, and other parts of the world. Um, and, and really with our partners, you know, get those, uh, you know, successfully and appropriately financed. Um, and, and given what we think will be a very uh, great TAM and a, and, a, and a really nice margin opportunity, we think that we could, you know, go from one factory to three, five, ten, you know, in a relatively quick period of time. And I, I was going to ask you about your, your global expansion plans, because I was curious if you, if you intend to build the factories yourself or does it make more sense to, to license the IP in, in some way? Or I, I, I assume maybe it's so uh, sensitive that that's not a good idea. So you have no choice but to build it yourself. But maybe you could talk about how you, you intend to assuming the, the, the uh, U.S. is such a success that you think it will be that, that you would continue, uh, excuse me, continue overseas. We, we do see various models for how factories will be built. Um, but in all cases, it'll be a joint venture of some form. So we really see ourselves working with a company, say in Japan or Korea, uh, Malaysia, et cetera, uh, Singapore, um, that would really, uh, and, and the value they provide is access to customers. You know, and, and, and obviously, you know, uh, relationships with contractors and engineers. So we see, you know, these partners uh, in a joint venture model uh, developing uh, a factory that we may in fact operate, um, but the trucks at the door will certainly not be ours. Um, and uh, so that exact model needs to be defined further. But we also see, Evan, a big opportunity when it comes to food security. So we do see national governments really motivated at, uh, and, we're, and we're seeing like we saw in Singapore with 30 by 30, and we're seeing that in other nations too, you know, that um, that may be landlocked, for example, and are really quite concerned about, you know, the global supply chain in the future. Uh, and some countries, as we know, you know, may not eat red meat or pork, certainly. Um, so and have a, a, a really great uh, love and interest in seafood. So the opportunity that Blunalo also solves, which is really very evident, is food security. So we do see some opportunities working with with nations. Uh, at the government level about how we can help solve a food security issue by building factories that could be dedicated for local populations. So, so again, there could be two models there. One that's a joint venture with a strategic partner and one that could even be a joint venture with a government uh, uh, entity uh, that's really food security driven, but still working with a local partner to distribute products to the end user. Um, but again, various ways which may come together, but I think we'll figure all that out over the next couple of years. Um, but uh, it does present itself, uh, you know, some, you know, we believe some, you know, really lucrative opportunities to partner with us. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I guess, again, to take a step back in, in your mind, um, if in five, 10 years, if for some reason, let's all hope not that you don't exactly get to where you want to go. I, I was curious, sort of the biggest risk and, and maybe the answer is the, the regulatory landscape. I know you've been quite collaborative. You, you mentioned talking to the governments and, and that kind of thing. So I was just curious, again, at a high level, how, how you've been regulated, uh, sorry, how you've been navigating the, the regulatory environment thus far. Yeah, I think that um, what's really actually uh, 
could be the greatest risk of all is the regulatory issue. Um, but but what, what has happened is because of food security, because of innovation, because of supply chain issues, we are seeing governments absolutely motivated to figure this out. So we entered this space with no regulatory agency anywhere in the world that has cell-based anything approved uh, for commerce. Uh, not at all, uh, and, you know, something that would impede this whole category from, from growing. So, so you know, in America, uh, we're obviously were, uh, I, I was very, I was there in person uh, when the USDA and FDA had joint meetings um, going back two, three years now. And they really uh, described this as innovation, something that, you know, was in the wheelhouse, if you will, of, of foods they already regulate, um, wasn't something that was concerning or required new legislation, um, but they just needed, they asked, they needed companies to come, as they said, early and often to meet with them to help describe the process, realize that there's different processes that might result in the finished product uh, that's made through this cell-based technology. So sure enough, we, we actually uh, have, have been meeting uh, in the case of US with FDA. So FDA solely regulates cell-based seafood, where USDA and FDA jointly regulate cell-based meat and poultry. Um, and uh, so it's, it's really been an extraordinary uh, relationship that we've had because it's been very interactive and collaborative. Um, and, uh, you know, and we're really, and I've, and I've suggested other companies that, that aren't doing that already do the same because, uh, you know, it's, you know they're, they're beyond helpful. We're seeing that around the world. We're seeing that in Asia. You know, that they're also, you know, developing more of a, a consultative relationship, you know, send us your information, we'll ask, we'll say, you know, please expand on this. Um, what do you mean by that? So, so we're seeing that both in Asia and the U.S., you know, so just a very collaborative uh, relationship that um, we need to, we need to answer the questions that they have, but uh, it's not like uh, give us a, a finished OCA and we'll, you know, we'll get back to you in a year. They're actually getting back in, in a relatively short amount of time because they're, they're motivated to, to really have these products uh, approved, but they obviously need to go through the appropriate food safety protocols um, to make sure that there's no concerns uh, uh, with any, any health issues. Um, as it relates to staying public or, or private, um, and I, I asked this more from a from a cultural rather than a financial standpoint, I, I was curious if if there is an openness, obviously, that would change your, your investors and, and maybe lose to some extent that that collaborative approach, at least far into the future. And then you mentioned a few minutes ago about um, the idea that maybe in particular in the cell based space that that there could be just a few groups um, that, that would sort of go in and buy up all the different products uh, or the different companies that, that um, grow the different products. May, maybe you could talk then a little bit deeper about the, the industry structure. And, and how you intend to play a, a role in, in, in uh, consolidating the industry, if that is indeed what happens. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that, that we'd be involved with consolidating it or, or that there would be any kind of uh, roll-up thing that might go on here, but only that um, it, is a, it is an extremely complicated category to develop. There is considerable IP, um, and there's therefore a very significant competitive moat around the companies that are in the space. Um, unlike other categories that, you know, including plant-based, you know, meat products, that there's multiple solutions that could be developed in a reasonable period of time. This is, uh, this is years of development time. And, uh, so I think as a result, you might see, you know, fewer players in cell base that could, that could potentially have a, a larger uh, market potential. 
Um, but we'll see over time, you know, so, so um, uh, I, I think again, I, you'll see a lot more action once the first uh, products enter the market. We do have a lot of excitement in Singapore um, with their regulatory approval. And I think once you see the FDA uh, and or USDA uh, approve the first products in America, you know, that will open the doors for a lot more investment activity and maybe more startups as well. So we're excited to be, you know, an, an early on here um, and with, with, I believe, a couple year head start, um, which, which we think could be quite valuable over time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and then I, I guess um, wrapping it up here, just a few. And again, you can pass on this question if you prefer not to. Uh, but I, I was curious. Uh, I, I'm, I know you're quite notable in the industry and, and uh, even attending this conference tomorrow and so on. But I, I was curious if there was one cell based peer uh, maybe that you're particularly fond of uh, besides Blue Now yourself, if there's one that you, you've admired, um, maybe how they've gone about building in a different a different vertical than yourself. Yeah, I, I um I admire, I admire all, all, all the companies, to be honest, Evan. You know, I think that we're all, we're all pioneers. We're all, we're all figuring this out. You know, you know I'm also uh, excited that there's, uh, there's a group you might be familiar with called AMPS, the Alliance for Meat, Poultry, Seafood Innovation. There's seven members of that organization. So you know, we're, we're all collaborating more on the regulatory side and nomenclature uh, areas, things like that. Um, so I admire all the companies in the space because they're all really and there's so many potential winners here because it is such a huge category. There's companies doing not just meat, poultry or seafood or different species, but there's also working on fat, uh, gelatin, you know, just uh, collagen. You know, so ingredients, products, you know, the whole fermentation space is also on fire, you know, uh, you know, with, with so many, you know, the whole the whole alternative protein category is just really, you know, um, so many opportunities. So again, there's just an awful lot of companies that I'm very confident will be very successful over time um, because this, you know, this category is, you know, a trillion plus. Um, so I think that uh, a variety of us will, will be able to, you know, achieve uh, some market share that could be quite significant in the next decade. Yeah, no, it's uh, it was hard to believe what it's reading and, and studying all this industry. Even they, they can grow leather and, and cotton and all kinds of things. It's just amazing. Uh, it seems like they, it's almost endless, uh, endless opportunities. Um, I, I guess just a few last questions here. I, I was curious about your, your personal ambitions. You mentioned you've already had quite a storied career in the industry, um, you know, maybe to get as detailed or you want or, or as general. I, I mean, what is your personal 10, 15 year, 20 view? You want to keep growing blown out to the extent you can or or what, what are your uh, personal ambitions longer term? Now this this is uh, I'm, I'm here, Evan, to to really you know build this company to its maximum potential success. So, um, you know the, the road is uh, you know as as they say in the seafood industry, it's still uncharted waters here. So, so uh, you know you know this is uh, this is a strategy that I thought of from the very beginning, and I'm here to execute it. And execution is really about going global and building factories around the world, and I want to see that happen. You know, and our team does too. So. I'm here for the long haul and uh, very excited to uh, uh, to really create a whole new supply chain and uh, and a great, you know, and frankly, it's a uh, it's a very personal thing because, you know, it's a chance for me to personally make a difference uh, for this planet. Uh, and that's clearly motivating me. You know, it's not just a business. This is uh, this is a passion um, to make a sustainable difference that can really help future generations. And uh, you know, this is what I want want to be is something I could leave for mankind. 
Oh, that's that's absolutely wonderful. And then the last question, I was just curious. I know it's only been a few years, uh, I guess, three or four uh, years since you started. Um, but maybe what, what is there been one moment uh, so far that you've been proud of um, at, at Blue Nalu that maybe your proudest moment as you reflect back on these years? Um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a continuous journey of a lot of proud moments. But I must say that maybe I'll answer it a different way. You know, there is the one surreal moment we had was the very first time we actually made a product in our, I don't like to say in a lab, but in our R&D facility, because I don't like to call this lab grown. Um, but sure enough, you know, our, our head of R&D prepared a product. And my God, it smelled like fish. It tasted like fish. It was fish, but it was just such a surreal experience to actually taste a product that, that came from the cells itself. And that was, um, that was, uh, when was that? That was some somewhere in the middle of 2019, I believe. Um, and then we actually had a big demonstration event later in 2019 um, where, we, where we did that in front of investors. But it was just uh, I think that was that was even so motivating for the whole team. The fact that we did it, you know, we developed something at the concept level, um, but it was a whole muscle, you know, piece of fish flesh that we actually prepared in the form. It, what was really exciting for us, Evan, was um, for me as a food person, I wanted to be able to demonstrate this product really performed the same. Does it caramelize? You know, does it brown when you sear it? Does it, you know, can you, can you like put it, you know, can you pan fry it in that 400 degree oil? Does it still stay together? You know, can you steam it? Can you saute it? You know, you know, can you do any possible, can you use acid like you might do in a ceviche or poke? We did all those conditions and it was the same as, so we really had so much excitement and confidence. So that was really an aha moment that gave all of us so much enthusiasm that sure enough, you know, at the very bench level, but we, we knocked it off. We actually had a product that um, driven by culinary that really had all the same sensory characteristics. And now we just need to do it in larger, larger volumes. But um, that was, you know, I, th I think uh, actually the smell of the fish, um, it just, it smelled fresh, it smelled delicious. But just that it was really every, you know, your all your sensory uh, you know, experiences were, were going off and it was just a, a, a great experience. Yeah, no, that's quite a memory. I can imagine it must have been a, a remarkable scene. Well, Lou, thank you. Thank you very, very much. I, uh, we obviously, I think everyone uh, wishes you the best on your, your mission to, uh, to accomplish your goals here. And, and we appreciate you taking the time. Well, my pleasure. Thank you, Evan. This is presented by Vanchap Capital LLC for informational purposes only. The future-looking statements and opinions expressed herein do not necessarily represent VanChap's views and opinions and may over time be proven inaccurate. VanChap may or may not manage securities positions of the issuers discussed in this presentation. Nothing herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation for an offer to buy any security. VanChap does not guarantee the accuracy of the information provided herein, and this presentation should not be the basis of any investment decision.